Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Darkcast Network, where the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Crime Con is going to be in Las Vegas in 2022, and it's going to be super lit. <laughs> we are pretty excited to be able to attend again and meet up with some of the folks that we met last year, plus meet some new true crime buddies, hopefully you. That's right. We'll be on Podcast Row with many other great podcasts. Plus, there's going to be tons of sessions, big personalities, and entertainment with plenty of opportunities to meet other like-minded folks. Please join us from April 29th to May 1st. And did we mention it's going to be in Las Vegas? Viva Las <laughs> Vegas! Tickets are on sale right now. Just go to CrimeCon.com and be sure to use the code Fruit Loops. That's F-R-U-I-T. L-O-O-P-S to save 10% and let them know we sent you. That's crimecon.com. Use the code Fruit Loops. We are so excited to meet you. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 149 yeah bienvenidos bitches thank you so much for listening and puti benafi for all my garifuna listeners out there uh now fruit loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cis able-bodied white dudes what? no there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops is a podcast all about them we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist <laughs> allegedly 
And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. It is not her fault, (laughs) y'all. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602 935 nine, <laughs> <laughs> And we may feature it on a future episode. <laughs> so our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Woo! So, yes, ma'am. Who? <laughs> Are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Tony Alvin Abels, Mm. a serial killer located in St. Petersburg, Florida. I feel like you have to make the distinction because apparently there is a Tony Abels who is, I think, a Russian serial killer. Oh, who has a net worth apparently of like one point five million dollars? I was like, wait a minute, which Abels is this? So. Tony I, I mean, Alvin Abels. Yes, yes Tony Alvin yes. Abels. But before we get into it, how you doing? Well, it's been one crazy week. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Where do we begin? Yeah. <laughs> I went to visit my daughter in North Dakota. Nice. And uh, my grandson's meds are not really mm-hmm. working right now. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, he was, oh. you know, he's still sweet yeah. and everything. He's just of course. super duper hyper. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's constantly going, um, has a hard time sleeping, gets up early in the morning. So I was unable to to get any work done on the podcast while I was there. Uh-huh. And then my flight out last Wednesday, which I, I was going to work on the podcast then, it was mm-hmm. delayed until the next day. Like Son the next of a bitch. Day. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> at least, you know, I got to spend the night again at my daughter's house. So it wasn't like I had to stay in a hotel or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, that's good. Yeah. That's good. But then I spent most of the next day in the Minneapolis airport. So. <laughs> Woo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. So, Isn't that a big airport, though? Lots is, to do. It's pretty big, yeah. And uh, there was a lot of places to buy food and stuff like that. But Which is fucking expensive uh, in the yeah. airport. I, I oh must my. have spent like $100 on food at the airports going there and back, like all together. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure I spent like $100. And, and just on sandwiches and bullshit, you know? Oh, damn. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's even expensive. Oh gosh, it's just water, everything. everything. Gum. I mean, yeah, everything's like, expensive. They it's highway it robbery. It really is because there's nothing you can do about it once you're stuck in there. Yeah. What, what else? You're, are you you're trapped. You're trapped. You're trapped. But you know what? I wonder. What could you order, Postmates? and have it delivered like at the checkpoint at the uh, security it, yeah has any i wonder if anybody's tried that i don't know i don't you know don't either, have your groceries but... delivered you I, know, I, I don't know i suspect it's not possible damn it um well <laughs> here we are i'm glad you made it yeah yeah safely back home though my friend yeah yeah and, and it was amazing you were able to get all that get eventually get because the, the episode was late we apologize yeah, y'all, but you posted it that. you did that shit I, did, I finished editing it and, <laughs> and i posted it while i was on the, at the minneapolis airport. that's amazing that's amazing that's amazing it was fun because yeah. i was i wasn't bored i wasn't just sitting there i was working so that was cool. 
Well, I'm glad you are back. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I traveled too. I went to LA for a, a wedding. My, right. um, my, one of my cousins, I have a lot of cousins. We, uh, he got married and, um, it was crazy because this is the cousin that like, you know, I, we grew up together, right? We're the exact same age. And all of a sudden this, my little friend is like a grown man married and it was cool seeing all my my family and stuff all, all the aunties and uh um yeah it was it, but my flight was delayed as well not a whole damn day though um yeah but crazy yeah man. It, yeah i don't know what it was if it was the weather or what, well they told us that the uh pilot was uh late so yeah with mine it was a uh, mechanical stuff so i wasn't mm-hmm. too sad that uh they made us wait <laughs> like, if that plane's not working i'm i'm fine with it <laughs> yeah it's one of those things you do want to be sure yeah, and you, that you things are do good need a pilot so, mm-hmm. so. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes ma'am um and but then when i got back because we're recording this last day of Black History Month. Right. And one of the things we did um, is we there was a parade in Stone Mountain. We've talked about Stone Mountain oh, before yeah, we have. on the show. Right. Uh, but and you it, said you would never go. <laughs> I did. I, can you believe it? Well, now I live there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Stone Mountain. Holy shit. Holy shit. Um, yeah. So we've been checking out the neighborhood and stuff. And there was this parade and there was all these black marching bands. Oh, and wow. I, it was the vibe was incredible. The, there was the drum majors doing all their dances and the majorettes and the horns and the drum lines. And, oh, my God. So cool. It was so fun. So anyway. um, So Stone Mountain's not so bad. Huh? Stone Mountain has really turned around. I got to say, <laughs> though, I told people that. Oh yeah, I'm moving to Stone Mountain. And my relatives were like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure that my whole neighborhood's black, and and this this parade was really really awesome, and so far so good. I know that Stone Mountain has a very storied history, but guess what? So does every other place in this damn United States. Yeah, true, true, very true. So yeah, now let's get into some listener letters. Thank you, Angel. Ah, yes. I love that sweet sound. What's in the bag? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Kyle Kyle or Kylie. I'm not sure. It's K-Y dot L-L dot E. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) And Sonia2530 for your five-star reviews. Yes, thank you. Hip-hop air horns to you all. Uh, yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. And we got an email from Anonymous. Oh, and Anonymous said, just listen to an episode from a few months back where you mentioned that prison guards can be violent or antisocial, not unlike the stereotype of the criminals. They talk about it. Yeah. Someone I know worked as a health professional in a prison and came away with some awful experiences from their interactions with the guards, even though they was only there as a healthcare professional. Guards at the doors into different parts of the prison thought it was funny (gasps) to shut the metal doors suddenly as health staff were going through and see if the health staff got injured. One healthcare provider broke a bone (gasps) because the guards closed the door on them. The guards 
guards thought it was funny that they were in pain. Hilarious. What? Funny. Yeah. Guards yelled at incarcerated people without cause, took privileges away from incarcerated people to display power over them, and complained about incarcerated people placed on suicide watch. Mm -hmm. The person I know always said that no matter what someone might be incarcerated for, they deserve to be treated like a human being, including having human rights and access to health care. Amen. Yeah. And while national elections may make bigger news this November, state and local elections also have big impacts on the lives of incarcerated people and many other vulnerable communities, including access to health care and other basic needs. To all the listeners, please make sure you are registered and make a plan to vote this November from mm-hmm. the national level all the way down to your local leadership. Your vote can make a difference. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So thank you, Anonymous. That was a really interesting email. Yeah. And thank you for the uh, plea for voting. Yeah. I almost, I mean, that's a wrap. Look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Bye. I'm going to go vote. (laughs) Well, uh, we got some new patrons. Uh, The Melanated Alchemist, a.k.a. Sarita, sent us a handsome donation on the cash. Nice. And Denisha is a new uh, Podbean patron. So hip hop air horns to you both. Thank you. Thank you. here are your tunes. Let's see. On that brown with a twist, tell these hoes to reminisce. Thank the melanated alchemist. And I'm like, bitch, let me tell you about that super fly, dirty, dirty third coast, muddy water. Show they pop that pussy if you wanna. Um, I just thought that the melanated alchemist might appreciate that. And plus, I've been listening to Southern rap very heavily lately. Okay. Uh, so that's for you. Now, Denisha, this is for you. Love will keep us together. Don't mess around. You gotta be strong. Stop, stop, cause I really love you. Stop, stop, I've been thinking of you. Look in your heart, Denisha. Thank you, Denisha. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I messed it up a little bit, but I hope you appreciated that. And thank you. And now we're going to take Captain and (laughs) Tennille. Yes. All right. Yes, I was listening to it today. So sue me. Now we're going to take a quick break and get to the story when we come back. Four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. 
through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do think though, in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends ever heard of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love best fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there <laughs> is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet.
can't. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. All right, we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Tony Alvin Abels, a man in St. Petersburg, Florida, who was convicted of two murders and connected via DNA to two others. Mm, I love it when (laughs) DNA is a... Ooh, yes. I love it when DNA is a character. Yes. So... Uh, Alvin Abels has uh, four victims. He was convicted of uh, killing two people. One of his victims was a black male, Thornton Gross. Uh, and then he had three female victims and they were white. So rest in power uh, again to Thornton Gross. Um, rest in power to 84-year-old retiree Adeline McLaughlin, 31-year-old Deborah Kaiser, and uh, 48-year-old Marlene Burns. Abels was born in December 1974 in uh, Have You Heard There's a Rumor in St. Petersburg, uh, Florida. <laughs> Uh, so he's a Florida man and uh, he's a Capricorn, if you are curious. Uh, he was 76 years old uh, he, or he is 76 years old currently. Um, he had several AKAs other than Florida man, um, which I've just given him. Uh, Tony <laughs> Abel's Thadiasis uh, Gordon. I've never heard that name before. Uh, Michael Jones and James Shelby. Uh, and his crimes took place from 1970 to 1990. That's yeah. a big time period. Yeah. Um, he was sentenced to death but his sentence was commuted to life for reasons we'll get into but for now let's get into the setting take us there Beth. the setting is saint petersburg florida between 1970 and 1990 various native american peoples too many to list have inhabited florida for at least fourteen thousand years y'all mm. in 1513 spanish explorer juan ponce de leon became the first known european to make landfall calling the region la florida in honor of pascua Florida, meaning flowery festival or feast of flowers, Spain's Easter time celebration. But it already had a name and people who lived there who were minding their beeswax. Yeah. Anyway, today, Pascua Florida, uh, Florida Day is celebrated as a state public holiday in Florida and is an annual celebration of Juan Ponce de Leon's arrival. I'm just going to say that I hate that. And I think it's basura to celebrate that. Anyway, yeah, Florida- let's keep it about the flowers, okay? Because <laughs> yeah. I like flower festivals. Flowers is fine. Yeah. Uh, Juan-, Juan Ponce de Leon Juan- is not. <laughs> not, yeah. Now, Florida became the first area in the continental U.S. to be permanently settled by Europeans, with the Spanish colony of St. Augustine founded in 1565, being the oldest continuously inhabited city. On April 14th, 1528, the Panfilo de Narvaez expedition landed on the shores of Boca Ciega Bay on Florida's central west coast, where St. Petersburg now sits at the Jungle Prada site. It was the first inland exploration by Europeans of North America. I love the names of places because Boca Ciega means like blind mouth. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure what that I don't know means. what that's about. Yeah. Uh, however, out of 300 men on the expedition, only four survived. Wow. One of the, yeah. Wow. Uh, one of the survivors of the expedition, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, wrote the first book describing people's wildlife flora and fauna of inland North America in his Relación, published in Spain in 1542. By the way, my son brought home um, Cabeza de Vaca reading assignment. Oh, okay. Um, about um, this conquistador. And I 
I had to explain to my son that this man was a rapist and a murderer. Next. <laughs> Can't wait to see his essay and what oh, his yeah. teacher well, says. I, I don't know if I helped him or hurt him, but I had to tell the truth. <laughs> the history of Black people in Florida dates back to this time, beginning with the arrival of Congolese Spanish conquistador Juan Garrido in 1513. The enslaved Afro-Spanish explorer Estevanico in 1528 and the landing of free and enslaved African persons at Mission Nombre de Dios in the future St. Augustine, Florida in 1565. Estevanico is considered the first African to explore North America. Estevanico was taken captive and enslaved and sold to a Spanish nobleman in Spain in about 1521. In 1527, he was taken on the Spanish Narvaez expedition to explore La Florida, which at the time was composed of present-day Florida, and on all unexplored lands to the north and west, including northern Mexico. Wow. Yeah. The first black city in the state formed in the St. Augustine region when a military outpost of free black settlers was established at Fort Mose. The black population became numerous in St. Augustine when fugitive enslaved peoples were promised freedom in exchange for military service. Guess what? They didn't get it. Though. Yeah. Guess uh, what? They lied. They lied. Uh, so uh, by the early 18th century, the indigenous Floridians living east of the Apalachicola River had mostly been killed off. Some Apalachis migrated to Louisiana, where their descendants now live. Some were taken to Cuba and Mexico by the Spanish in the 18th century, and a few may have been absorbed into the Seminole and Miccosukee tribes. Florida was repeatedly contested by Spain and Great Britain before being ceded to the U.S. in 1819, when then-Secretary of State John Quincy Adams signed the Florida Purchase Treaty, bringing the Spanish era to an end, and the Afro-Spanish population departed to Cuba. I like the way you said Cuba. Cuba. <laughs> uh, for, formal U.S. occupation began in 1821, and General Andrew Jackson... By the way, <laughs> I, I, knew, I, about, I gotta say I something about it. Andrew <laughs> Because Andrew Jackson is like a one of the most terrible human beings to ever walk the face of the earth, and it, like Andrew Jackson was president and a general during the eight, the eighteen twenties, right? Um, and he was, I think, he was vice president. But he, it, it would so racism was. Um, racism has always been wrong, but it was um, acceptable. Back during then, yeah. Andrew Jackson's time. But Andrew Jackson was so racist that people at the time were like, whoa, bruh, cool <laughs> it. Which how I, bad it was. That's how bad it was. <laughs> wow. So anyway, so General Andrew Jackson was appointed military governor. Uh, Florida was organized as a U.S. territory in 1822 and was admitted into the Union as a slave state in 1845. Black enslaved people soon became the main Black population in the state. After the Civil War, there was a brief Reconstruction era from 1867 to 1877. This included enforcement of rights for Black people. 
this era vanished suddenly, the result of the Compromise of 1877, which was an electoral college dispute centered around the legitimacy of the 1876 presidential election. Yeah. And also violence was a big part of why Reconstruction failed as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Compromise of 1877 was an unwritten deal informally arranged among United States congressmen that settled the dispute. It resulted in the federal government pulling the last troops out of the southern United States. They were there to help keep order because this reconstruction people was so were not, yeah. Yeah, it was so um revolutionary, but right. um really freaked white people yeah. out. Um but and so, the white people were not complying. N- right, right. Um and so so the last troops were pulled out of the southern United States and Reconstruction ended. Through the compromise, Republican Rutherford B. Hayes was awarded the presidency over Democrat Samuel J. Tilden on the understanding that Hayes would remove the federal troops whose support was essential for the survival of Republican state governments in South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. Hayes received 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184 electoral votes. Despite losing the election, Tilden had won the popular vote with 4,301,000 votes to 4 million and 36,000 votes for Hayes. Wow. So it was a very um, small number. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a small margin. Uh, history is really repeating itself. Yeah, isn't it? it certainly <laughs> is. Yeah. Uh, now, during Reconstruction, ba- Black people had registered to vote, run for office, establish churches, open businesses, and purchase land. But post-Reconstruction policies allowed for civil rights for Black people to lapse. Jim Crow, segregation laws, widespread disenfranchisement, and discriminatory social norms and systems negated many efforts for Black Americans to achieve real civil, legal, or social equality. Black voters and Black politicians vanished under threat and acts of violence from reactionary white people. By the turn of the century, two decades of relentless, violent, white pushback against change meant that that hopes of a changed and equitable South were largely gone. Oh, boy. Yeah. It's depressing. Uh, so from 1900 to 1930, per capita, lynching was the highest in Florida than in any other state. Wow. Offenders were often known, but no legal proceedings ensued. Surprise! In, surprise! <laughs> in 1951, with the murder of civil rights activist Harry and Harriet Moore in Mims, Florida, a tipping point was reached. The couple was killed on Christmas Day by an explosive device made from dynamite, which had been placed directly under their bedroom floor. (gasps) The murders triggered nationwide protests, rallies, memorials, and other events. Wow. Um, Over the years, five separate criminal investigations have been initiated and completed. The last one in 2008, when the FBI again investigated the Moore homicides as part of the Department of Justice's cold case initiative. Four subjects who were known to be high-ranking members within the Ku Klux Klan in the central region of Florida were identified as the main suspects, but no arrests were ever made in the case, and all four of the subjects are now deceased. Mm. The Department of Justice Civil Rights Division closed the file on the federal investigation in 2011. Wow. They just closed files, huh? On well, people. That, I think there wasn't enough evidence or so they said. <laughs> yeah. 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 So they said. 
Uh, just I mean, it, by 2011, I wouldn't think they would care, you know? Um, it, it wasn't like <sighs> back when it... Yeah, you're sighing. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you're like, oh, woman, oh, you have so no. much to learn. <laughs> no, no, no. No, Beth, you are one of the good ones. No, I just think it's, uh, it's just interesting the way the FBI operates and has operated since the since its inception um, and how it views and pursues crimes committed by by white murderers yeah yeah and um murders conducted by the state and state officials um compared to those who young young people who um may have um written notes in their rap notebook about wanting to kill and um cause um uh harm right just just their ideas put right. them on trial or we'll get them in, in caught up with the FBI or catch a case with the FBI. It just, right, the, right. it's just the um, eyes of justice. Uh, that bitch I is supposed agree. to be blind, yeah, but yeah. doesn't look like it. <laughs> anyway. I'm just wondering like <laughs> 60 years later and the suspects are deceased you know, mm-hmm. why would they be so... Why would the FBI be interested? You know, back in 1951, they would want, you know, a lot of those, um, like the police departments and stuff, would want to protect these people. Cause, <gasps> right, but right. 60 years later, why would they care to protect them anymore? Yeah, and I think a lot of it also has to do with the um, people who work in the FBI and work in these um, the Department of Justice also have, I think, a strong desire to protect the institution, not necessarily the people. Oh, okay. And there were people in the FBI who could have investigated this type of thing. It kind of reminds me of the Martin Luther King um, death, how the investigation was fumbled, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it reopened, closed, reopened, um, examined from this angle and that angle. And it, my, my conclusion is that there is a, the institution wants to protect itself, not necessarily the individuals oh, okay. who, who were in charge. The crime. Yeah. yeah, that's that's my thought. Okay, but okay. What do I know? Anyway, yeah, I'm just curious. <laughs> you know, why would they care to protect these people anymore? Sixty yeah. years later, but that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. I, America has a really hard time um, looking in the mirror. Yeah, and uh, if you <laughs> if you see your lipstick is smudged, you should fix it. But the <laughs> FBI just closes the mirror. <laughs> That's funny. (laughs) So a violent era was followed by um, continued segregation, but Governor Leroy Collins, who served as the governor of Florida from 1955 to 1961, took the position that segregation was morally unfair and wrong. This was succeeded by the Federal Civil Rights Act in 1964. Schools were integrated, but not without difficulty, which we've discussed in previous episodes. Yeah. During the early 1900s, Black people made up nearly half of the state's population. In response to segregation, disenfranchisement, and agricultural depression, many Black folks migrated from Florida to northern cities during the Great Migration. They moved for better jobs, better education for their children, and the chance to vote and participate in society. Also to live. And to live, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And not die. (laughs) 
By 1960, the percentage of black people in the state had declined to 18%. So wow. 50% to 18%. Wow. Yeah. That's, wow. Uh, Florida, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Yes. yes. Uh, in the meantime, large numbers of white, who, who am I kidding? Florida is not ashamed. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, large numbers of white people had moved into the state. As of 2010, black people accounted for only 16% of Florida's population. Today, concentrations of black residents can be found most mostly in northern and central Florida. Aside from black people who are descended from enslaved Africans brought to the southern U.S., there are also large numbers of West Indian, Afro-Caribbean, recent African and Afro-Latino people, mm-hmm. especially in the Miami slash South Florida area. Oh, yeah. So St. Petersburg is on the west coast of Florida, on the Pinellas Peninsula between Tampa Bay and the Gulf of Mexico, and is connected to mainland Florida to the north. It was founded by in 1888 by John C. Williams, who purchased the land, and by Peter Demons, who brought the railroad industry into the area. By the way, are we going to talk about how Florida looks like a penis? Um. <laughs> well, uh, we, we're talking about it right now. <laughs> okay. I just, every time, every time. I think of that stuff. State so it's map. it's uh the the penis of the it's United America's States. dick yeah yeah, yeah anyway sorry there Florida nope. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Saint Petersburg was named after Saint Petersburg Russia where Peter Demons had spent half his youth a local legend says that John C Williams and Peter Demons flipped a coin to see who would have the honor of naming the city Peter Demons won and named the city after his home while hmm. John John C. Williams named the first hotel after his birthplace, Detroit, and the hotel was built by Peter Demons. Okay. Now the Detroit very interesting. The Detroit Hotel still exists downtown but has been turned into a condominium. The oldest running hotels are the historic Cordova Inn, formerly Hotel Cordova, built in 1921, and the Heritage Hotel, built in 1926. St. Petersburg was incorporated as a town in 1892 and reincorporated as a city in 1903. In 1914, airplane service across Tampa Bay from St. Petersburg to Tampa and back was initiated generally considered the first scheduled commercial airline flight. Wow, that yeah. sounds important. Yeah. The company name was the St. Petersburg Tampa Airboat Line and the pilot was Tony Janus flying a Benoist 14 flying boat. The Tony Janus Award is pre- presented annually for outstanding achievement in the airline industry. Janus Live, a local music slash entertainment venue on Central Avenue in downtown is also named after him. A flying boat. A flying boat. I'm on wow. a boat. I'm on with T-Pain. <laughs> oh, Beth, you're the best. <laughs> best white lady in the game. Tourism <laughs> declined by the late 1920s and early 1930s due to the Great Depression. The city recovered later in the 1930s with the help of the Public Works Administration, including a $10 million investment plan in 1939, which helped build the St. Petersburg City Hall. Wow. The Second World War brought renewal growth as the city's Bayboro Harbor became a training place for the U.S. Coast Guard and the Army Air Force chose the city as their technical service training station. 
The hotels filled up for the first time in years as approximately 100,000 troops came to St. Petersburg. After the war, many of the troops who were stationed in St. Petersburg returned as residents or tourists. The city population continued to multiply during the 20th century, booming in the 1940s and 50s and through the 1970s as the town became a popular retirement destination for Americans from Midwestern cities, reaching approximately 240,000 in 1980. By that time, however, the population had leveled off and has grown by only 10,000 since then. In the decade from 2000 to 2010, the population of the city dropped by approximately 4,000 residents. Did they all die? <laughs> They're retired, right? Yeah, while, Who knows? while in the same period, <laughs> the population of Florida as a whole increased by over two and a half million residents. Hmm. In 2014, the New York Times proclaimed St. Petersburg as, quote, one of the top places to go in the world, unquote. Huh. Wow. I'm going to have to look up that article and find out why. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Why? <laughs> Since then, St. Petersburg has been host to hundreds of events, which has brought in millions of tourists. Interesting. So located in the Gulf of Mexico, the average water temperature is, a, is typically around 76 degrees Fahrenheit, 24 degrees Celsius nice. for all my metric fans out there. <laughs> uh, due to its good weather and low cost of living, the city has long been a popular retirement destination. Although in recent years, the population has moved in a much more youthful direction. With an average of some 361 days of sunshine each wow. year. Oh, that's wow. wow. Yeah. That's and nice. a Guinness World Record for the most consecutive days of sunshine, 768 <gasps> days between 1967 and 1969. That's nuts. That is amazing nuts. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So its nickname is the Sunshine City. What a perfect fit. Yeah. In 2010, the racial makeup of St. Petersburg was approximately 69% white, 24% black, 3% Asian, 0.3% Native American, 0.1% Pacific Islander, and 4% other, from other races. Uh, Hispanic or Lat Latinx people of any race numbered about 7% with 2% Puerto Rican, 1% Mexican, 1% Cuban, and other Hispanic or Latino people making up 2% of the population. If you live in or want to visit the area, which is also known as St. Pete, you oh. can learn about Black history specific to the city by going to the African American Heritage Trail, which is a self-guided walking tour that provides an overview of the African American influence and history in St. Pete. That is really cool. Yeah. Um, so covering more than a dozen city blocks in South St. Pete's downtown area, 19 markers identify landmarks and provide details about the history of St. Pete's African American community. Individuals, groups, and classes can arrange for a guided tour, walking or by trolley wow. by contacting the African American Heritage Association. You'll find a link to their website in our show notes. Nice. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events 
that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right, it's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So now it's time to talk about Tony Alvin Abel's 
early life. What do you got, Beth? Tony Alvin Abels, who is Black, was born on December 28, 1954, in Florida. According to Tony's father, Clyde Abels, born in 1932, also Black, they moved to St. Petersburg when Tony was just a child. Tony had seven brothers and sisters. Big family. Yeah. Um, and uh, his dad was born in 1932, so I can just imagine like the racial trauma and um, horror that he experienced. Um, But Clyde Abels worked in construction. Tony's mother, Ari Lee Abels, maiden name Reed, I guess, um, was a black woman. And she abandoned the family in the 1960s, an event his father said placed terrible strains on the children. Although one of Tony's brothers has said that the reason their mother left was because their father was abusing her. Ari Lee had only been about 15 15 years old mm. when she married Clyde in 1952 when he was 20. Mm. <sighs> Gross. <laughs> yeah. Wh- I mean, wow. But yeah. I guess different time. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. And it was a different time. It probably wasn't that unusual, but still gross. Uh, they were married in Washington, Florida. She would have been about 17 years old when Tony was born and about 27 years old when he was 10, uh, which maybe was when they when she left. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Clyde and Ari Lee divorced in 1974 when Tony was 20. According to Clyde, until Ari Lee left, Tony was an outgoing, friendly kid who was a good violin player. But he began running away when he was 13 years old and often disappeared for months. Over the course of his life, Tony was alternatively known as Tony Abel's ELS, a spelling change from Abel's LES. Uh, and according to some accounts, which we at Fruit Loops could not verify, he was also known as the Diocese Gordon, Michael Jones, and James Selby. So now we're going to dive on into the timeline. On December 11th, 1970, a couple weeks before his 16th birthday, Abel shot and killed 68-year-old Thornton Gross. Thornton had lived at 1040 22nd Street South in St. Petersburg, Florida, which if you look up the address on Googleisha, turns out uh, to now be part of the St. Petersburg College uh, Cecil B. Keene Student Achievement Center. Interesting. Cecil B. Keene was a black man native to Pinellas County who advocated for those who needed help and encouragement to reach their potential and inspired those who thought an education was beyond their reach. And I hope that Thornton can be proud of what his former residence has become, wherever Thornton's consciousness may be right now. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Minnie. Uh, <laughs> Abel's lived at 591 20th Street South in St. Petersburg at the time, which now appears to be uh, the Pinellas County Job Corps Center, a trade school. The two locations were less than a mile from each other, so it's possible that Abel's may have known or stalked his victim. We don't really know. Um, but he had apparently killed him while robbing him. And this was Abel's only known male victim. Thornton's body was found the same day he was shot in an alley west of 22nd Street, having died of a large caliber gunshot wound to his heart. Mm. The circumstances of the investigation were unclear from the information that we found, but Abel's was arrested for the murder on December 9th, 1970, and was held in the Pinellas County Jail from that date until he was indicted on January 12th, 1971. Looks mm. like Abel's spent his 16th birthday in jail. Party! Oh, man. Break yeah. out the prison cake. <laughs> Wait, no, breakout might not be the appropriate term to use here. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it, obviously, different time. It's the 70s, but for a kid, 
it to be um in jail in jail that for age. that for that yeah. long um yeah yeah i don't know what to make of it so funeral services were held for thornton gross on january 15th 1971 and on march 19th 1971 abel's pleaded guilty to first degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison for killing thornton but was paroled 12 years later in 1983 at the age of 28 after his release he found a job doing construction work like his father had done on june 25th 1983 early in the morning before sunrise someone shattered the first floor apartment window of adeline McLaughlin, an 83-year-old widow who lived in the 10 Ike Hotel on 132 Mirror Lake Drive, a downtown retirement community overlooking Mirror Lake. The assistant manager of the hotel found her body at about 8.15 a.m. that Saturday morning. She had been sexually assaulted and smothered with a pillow. The apartment was burglarized and an autopsy showed that she had died of choking and asphyxiation. Adeline, a white woman, was described by her fellow residents as slender and stylish and liked to spend her time quietly on the veranda of her hotel overlooking the lake. Her neighbors said she was, quote, not a fussy person, was not very talkative and never gossiped about others, unquote. She had moved to St. Petersburg from Worcester, Massachusetts, about 25 years prior to retire there with her husband. Her husband had died of a stroke in December 1981, and she had moved to the retirement hotel the following April in 1982. Her niece, Anne McLean, said that Adeline had expressed liking St. Petersburg and being happy in the hotel where she had lived before her life was taken from her so suddenly on June 25th, 1982. This was five months after Tony Abels's release from prison in 1983, though he was not a suspect at the time and the case remained unsolved for years. But Abels was arrested a number of times on petty crimes over the next few years. Yeah, he really didn't waste much time. No. And I wonder what resources might have been available to him. For him, yeah. So he wouldn't have to rob. Do you know what I'm saying? Stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, so on the morning of Saturday, February 14th, 1983, a man walking along a path near the Roser Park Bridge in a small residential neighborhood in St. Petersburg found a woman's partially clothed body in a clearing in some thick brush. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. It, that's, that's February 14th. That's Look crazy. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're jealous, aren't you, though? So. Because <laughs> he found yes. a body. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> That would have yeah. been a perfect Valentine's present for you. For me? For me? For my sick ass? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. The woman was later identified as Deborah Kaiser. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled in a pair of blue jeans, likely hers, had been found next to her partially undressed body. She was 31 years old when she was murdered. Deborah, a white woman, was born in California and had moved to St. Petersburg from Monterrey, California, 1970. By 1987, she was living in a Boley Inc. transitory home for quote-unquote mental patients. She had been missing from the home since the previous Wednesday, February 11th, and the home had filed a missing persons report for her with the police on Thursday, February 12th. A person matching Deborah's description had been seen using a payphone in front of a nearby apartment building that Friday night before she was found. 
around, but this was the last time she was reported to have been seen alive by anyone other than her murderer. Police estimated that she'd been dead for about 12 hours before she'd been found at about 8.30 a.m. that Saturday morning. The brutal killings of Adeline and Deborah remained unsolved for years. St. Petersburg detectives submitted DNA samples for testing in the late 1990s, but had no luck at the time. On Monday, June 4, 1990, a now 35-year-old Abels was heard arguing with his 48-year-old girlfriend, Marlene T. Burns, a white woman, in their apartment on 615 Grove Street in St. Petersburg. Witnesses saw Abels leave at about 7.45 p.m. that evening, wiping blood from his hands and carrying an object. Uh Uh-oh. What? He's just wiping around, walking around, wiping blood on his... What the hell? Uh, Another resident found Marlene's body at about 11.30 p.m. and then called emergency services. Paramedics pronounced her dead at the scene. She'd been beaten to death with a blunt object. So, yeah, now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest Hit it, Beth. By the time police arrived that night in response to the emergency call, Abels had returned to the apartment that he shared with Marlene, but the blunt object that he had used to beat her to death was gone. Police took him in for questioning, then charged him with first-degree murder. He was held without bail at the Pinellas County Jail, north of St. Petersburg. So now, it's time for the trial. We couldn't find much detail about the trial itself, but on January 30th, 1992, about a year and a half later, Tony Abels was convicted of beating and kicking Marlene to death. At the time, the jury recommended by an 8-4 to four vote that the penalty should be death by electrocution. The infamous electrocution chair old sparky <laughs> i was gonna say it's been a long time since i've heard even the words electric chair yeah uttered. yeah it's, we don't we, it, we don't i mean i know this happened anymore. in the 90s we yeah. don't do that anymore but that's not that long ago you know that's true you're yeah right. you're right it's, what is it <laughs> 30 years ago <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's almost half my lifetime ago <laughs> well uh time but is a funny thing like that long ago yeah yeah, no, it really doesn't. I mean, I um, I, I remember electric chair being mentioned in movies that I saw at mm-hmm. the time or on the news. It would come up, um, yeah. you know, when uh, re- reporters were discussing crimes. But right. we just don't talk about it anymore. Right. Um, on May 11th, 1992, his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment by Justice Bob Barker. What's that? The price is wrong, bitch. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so Judge Barker felt that Abel's mental health issues, along with other issues, outweighed aggravating factors in the case. The prosecutor, Bob Heyman, argued in favor of the death penalty, saying that Marlene and Abel's had been drinking and arguing the day that he killed her and that Abel's thought she was seeing another man. He had found her in another apartment that evening and had thrown her down the stairs, then beat and kicked her to death. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I know you're not supposed to breathe in a microphone like that, but wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, her ribs had been fractured in 29 places. Whoa. Yeah. Witnesses had said that they had heard loud noises for about an hour. An hour during this time. So he must have oh, been Jesus beating Christ. her that entire time. Why didn't they call police? Nobody called time. anybody yeah, or Jesus. knocked on the door or anything. anything. Um Wow. I don't like to think about what her final hour must have been like. And it just must have been pure hell. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's sad. Yeah. Heyman said that he couldn't think of a more aggravating factor. I I thought it said, hey, hey, man. Hey, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 
sorry. I'm like, why did she say hey, baby? Hey, man. This is hey, man. Hey, man. Okay, sorry. I'm I couldn't sorry. think of a more aggravating factor. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Wow. Prosecutor Heyman said that he couldn't think of a more aggravating factor in support of the death penalty than his prior murder conviction and that Abel's killed because he was just, quote, unquote, darn mean. Mm. Well, you know, uh, I think he, hey man, he's right. <laughs> hey, man, I I think I might. Ha- I don't do this often, but I might have to agree with yeah. this prosecutor. Yeah. <laughs> now, the defense attorney, Tom McCoon, argued that Abel's had mental issues that prevented him from curbing his impulses and that he couldn't help himself from acting on impulse. Uh, he also brought in Abel's brother, Anthony, to testify as to their difficult childhood. Um, wait a minute. So Abel's name is Tony and his brother is also named Tony. Well, it's Anthony, uh, but Anthony. Tony is short for Anthony. So, yeah, that's confusing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but you, there was seven of them. So maybe their parents were like, whatever. whatever. We'll just, yeah. Let's just name we'll this just one. We'll just name him Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you get the fancy name? Why did I get Tony? I'm going to kill people. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Maybe that was it. That we'll was it. To it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Abel's brother Anthony said that their parents constantly fought and that their father abused their mother to the extent that she left the family. Anthony did say that he wondered why she didn't take the children with her. Mm. Judge Barker did say that the brutal nature of the murder was enough to warrant the death penalty, but that he didn't think it would hold up on appeal because of the complicating factors of his mental health and childhood. Abel's has been in prison since that time. Uh, so now we're going to get into the follow-up investigation because remember Ooh, my girl DNA is coming yeah. through and the arrest. The murders of Adeline and Deborah m- remained unsolved until 2006, when homicide detectives were finally able to match Abel's DNA with evidence found on both women's bodies. In 2005, St. Petersburg homicide detectives had submitted DNA samples recovered from various unsolved homicides to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. By then, there had been advances in DNA technology, and in December of 2006, St. Petersburg homicide received confirmation that the evidence recovered from Adeline McLaughlin's body and Deborah Kaiser's body matched with Abel's, who had provided a DNA sample after his 1992 conviction for Marlene's murder. The police finally had the evidence they needed to arrest Abel's for the murders of Adeline and Deborah. Abel's was not charged with killing Deborah as they were romantically involved, which what the fuck? Um, But officials considered the case closed. So this is an aside from Minnie, and she said, personally, I don't see how someone being romantically involved with their victim excuses them from sexually assaulting and murdering them. But I imagine it's more of a complicating factor based on evidence. It would be more difficult to prove that DNA found on the person didn't get there as part of a consensual interaction and that there wasn't another unidentified person who actually did the assault and murder. But it's got to be terribly frustrating for the victim's family. And I think we all know that it's highly likely that he did it, but Mm -hmm. courts feel that it would be too difficult and costly to prove it. Plus, he's already in prison for life and facing another charge. So I guess they figured avoid the cost and close that case. Maybe. And also it's it's uh, it's the 90s. 
um, early 2000s. Oh, 2000s, yeah. And um, I think the way we talk about sexual assault and domestic partner violence it's is different, different now. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know if um, maybe in a 2022 lens, um, if the outcome would have been exactly the different, same. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so with the DNA evidence, Abel's faced one additional charge of first-degree murder for the murder of Adeline McLaughlin. On December 5th, 2006, he was brought to the Pinellas County Jail to be booked for the murder, but was not formally charged. At the time, police said that Abel's is a serial killer who may have committed more unsolved homicides. Michael Poots, a major in the St. Petersburg Police Force at the time, said, quote, We do suspect there's a high probability that there's more he's responsible for than what we've been able to link him to so far, unquote. He also said that he didn't think Abel's would ever have been identified as a suspect in these cases if it weren't for the advances in DNA technology. Father God, I just want to thank you for blessing us with <laughs> DNA technology. Amen. Uh, Sergeant Mike Kovachev, uh, the head of homicide investigations at the time, said, quote, the investigators spoke to the families and it was nice to give them closure. Unfortunately, the DNA testing back then wasn't as sophisticated as it is now, unquote. Sergeant Kovachev said that Abels didn't want to talk to police, but... Clyde Abels, Tony's father, 74 at the time of an interview in December 2006, said that he was saddened by the accusations. Quote, it's hard on me, and I know it's hard on the victim's families. I feel for them, unquote. And I wonder if he thought about his abuse of his children and former wife and felt for them, too, at the time. I don't know. I mean, I've known a lot of old black men, and uh, in my experience, uh no (laughs) they're not well yeah i mean they're not i'm just speaking from my experience that they they don't look at their past their past in that way Uh, this is just my experience i'm saying old old, men men, men in general oh there we go old yes that's i think that's also fair that old men for some reason have a hard time looking back yeah (laughs) uh And finding any fault in how they finding live their life. Finding any fault. Yeah. Man. Uh, <laughs> Must be far, nice. <laughs> I'm telling you. Oh, my God. As far So as far as we can tell to this day, Abel's has yet to be formally charged with Adeline's murder. Uh, I wonder if they've just decided it's not worth the cost of the trial, but we feel for Adeline. Um, she seemed like a nice lady. So we're going to keep you in our thoughts and prayers, Adeline, and to, um, obviously her surviving family members. Yeah. So now we're going to get into where are they now? What do you got, Beth? Abel's is currently serving time at Charlotte Correctional Institution in Punta Gorda, Florida. In my minimal understanding of Spanish, this directly translates to Fat Point. <laughs> yes, that is true. We commented on the very funny names uh, of, uh, that the conquistadors Florida, yeah. put, on, put on places in Florida. Um, by the way, did you know that the name of the Grand Tetons Mountains directly translates to big tits in French? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. Yep. But yeah, and then and then there's Mesa, Arizona, um, which is a rocky formation that looks like a table, but Mesa is literally 
Table. So there's a place in Arizona named Table Mesa. No, yeah. there is. Yeah. Whoa. So, so it, it's actually named Table Table. <laughs> table Table. <laughs> Thanks, Minnie. Yeah. The more you know. <laughs> the Charlotte Correctional Institution in Punta Gorda is a state prison for men owned and operated by the Florida Department of Corrections. This facility has a mix of security levels. It first opened in 1989 and has a maximum capacity of 1,291 prisoners. Don't forget that one. Don't forget that one. And then also think of those those prisoners count as um, uh, constituents. Right. Even though, uh, and vote. so the bigger the prisons, the more the prisoners, the more um, constituents and and seats that elected officials get. Right. Um, and uh, prisons are are big business in Florida and other parts of the uh, United elsewhere, States. Elsewhere, yeah, yeah. Uh, so a 2015 grand jury report delivered a quote. Uh, blistering and graphic rebuke, unquote, to the Florida Department of Corrections for the beating death of Sh- Charlotte inmate Matthew Walker on April 11th, 2014, at the hands of guards. God damn it. Um, reporters John Hackworth and Brian Gleason of Suncoast Media Group were awarded with a 2016 Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing for their reporting on Walker's death. Then there's more. Yep, there's more. On June 4th, 2015, inmate Peter Peterkin was found dead in circumstances that officials refused to explain to his family. Huh? And then on August 4th, 2015, inmate Conta Howard was found dead. His death became the seventh ongoing criminal investigation at Charlotte. Yikes. Son of a bitch. There's only God. how many people? 1,291 people. And there's One, all this all, yeah, shit going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. And the, what's what's worse is I'm looking at these names and these numbers and the, we're just, this is just scratching the scratching surface. Scratching the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Abel's father, Clyde Abel's, passed away on July 29th, 2015, survived by his wife, five sons, four daughters, four four siblings, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and other relatives. Abel's mother, Ari Lee, passed away on January 4th, 2007, and we weren't able to find any other details about her life after she left Clyde or her children or about her death. Um, So now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think might have made Abel snap. What, 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 well, first, let's start with what Minnie had to say. Yeah, Minnie said, I wonder if Abel's held anger for his mother his entire life for leaving the kids with an abusive father. And that's why his victims were primarily women who were older than him. Mm. And uh, I think Minnie might be onto something. Yeah. Regardless of the circumstances of her leaving, um, it may have made sense for her at the time. Yeah. As a child, Abel's wouldn't understand it and would right. just feel abandoned. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know exactly where he was in the sibling order. I think kind of at the top, but he did have a lot of siblings and uh, they were left with an abusive father. So mm. it's no wonder that he started acting out when he was a teenager. Yep. And then he, you know, committed a murder and spent 12 years in jail. So mo- yeah. most of his young adult life in prison. And yeah. uh, that's got to fuck you up. Yeah. Not a lot of um, nurturing going no, on in there, as you no. as we've heard. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
And the judge mental mentioned mental health issues, but we don't know what those were. Mm-hmm. However, for a judge to be like, nah, death penalty is off the table in Florida. Girl, <laughs> girl. Uh, it sounds what? like the mental health issues and other mitigating circumstances must have been pretty bad. Um, yeah. I just wish we knew what they they were. But yeah, I'm confident it, uh, that uh, he his life was pretty horrible. I agree. Um, I could not agree with you more. That judge's decision really threw me for a loop. I was like, what? What? (laughs) My my head, my neck hurts from cocking my head so hard. Uh, And yeah, he just took Abel's brother's word for it on this trauma that they experienced. And um, it was just, it's a huge surprise. I think abandonment and the trauma experienced in his childhood um, had a lasting effect. We know it does. Um, And we've talked about trauma in the past and people's ACE scores. Remember adverse childhood experiences and the rating scale on on a scale of one to 10. And it's a tally of different types of abuse, neglect, and other difficulties or traumas endured during childhood. And the higher your score, the higher your risk for mental and physical health problems. And it makes it difficult for people to regulate their emotions and their behavior. Yeah. Um, and having someone, you know, who loves you, who trusts you, or, you know, getting mental health treatment can help mitigate those effects. But I gather Florida man, a.k.a. Alvin, uh, Tony Alvin Abel's um, score was likely very high, right. um, given um, what we know. And I I mean, he killed somebody at 15 yeah. and then became part of the carceral system and likely endured many more traumas and abuse uh, and came out of prison even worse. Right. And I think um, we all understand that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And um, Abel certainly did that in the worst way by taking the people's lives and and rest and again, rest in power to the victims. But this feels like um, I believe we can have empathy for the young person that Abel's the child that Abel's was. Um, as well as the the victims. Um, yeah. So now we're gonna get into how not to get murdered. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Okay, so unrelated to the case, okay, but a little crime tip to prevent crime. Okay, um, so you know we've talked about before, like signage. You know, keep you know beware of dog signs or yeah. alarm signage around your home. Um, now don't laugh. Okay, but I can't um, promise anything. But so I live <laughs> in the south now, and apparently. It's a lot of snakes out here uh-huh. um, and people don't like them. Now, there's also um, a lot of um, a lot of crime. Crime is subjective and um, it's a sign of struggle. It's more of a societal issue. But there are a lot of uh, break ins, car, car break ins. Okay. And so one of my neighbors posted on the na- on the next door app. Y'all get yourself some rubber snakes and put them in your car or in front of your home to keep people from breaking into getting your stuff. Yeah. So I went to Amazon immediately and I have bought several realistic rubber snakes right on. and put them in my car. And Did so you put far, them in your yard too? Not yet. Cause okay. uh, we haven't uh, moved oh, in. Oh yeah, that's right. But 
Uh, I did put them in the car to prevent break-ins, and so far, so good. So <laughs> right that's my suggestion. That's your tip for, for this week. That's my yeah. okay. safety tip. Do Very you have cool. anything? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, if maybe, you have... Maybe rubber cockroaches would work, too. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon. Rubber cockroaches or palmetto bugs, the giant ones. Oh, my palmetto God. Palmetto bugs? Yeah. What's a palmetto bug? They're those sewer roaches. Oh, Lord. Oh, God. Okay. You know what? Maybe I do want to move back to Arizona. I don't know. This might be too much for me. Oh, no. They're here. You know, those big cockroaches. Oh, I thought that they were called... I thought those were beetles. I didn't know those were roaches. Yeah, they're... Well, they're called... uh, With the big... The common name that people call them is sewer roaches, but they're, they're actually palmetto bugs. Okay, well... But they have them in Florida, too. Oh, look at that. Bringing it back to the story. (laughs) Way to go, Beth. (laughs) But that's a good idea. Yeah. Man, you got to do whatever it takes, right? Yeah. Stay safe out here in these streets. There's a bunch of them in your car. (laughs) In my car, in the. (laughs) Everywhere. 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 (laughs) Buy a a Land Rover, like a fancy car, and just put like bugs all over it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) What alarm. Uh, So now it's shout out. time where we shout out any content by or about any marginalized oppressed or othered um, gr- uh, or underrepresented um, people uh, or any true crime goodies I I don't know if I'm right but did you already shout out Raising Dion? I don't think so. Okay it's on Netflix and it's about a little black boy named Dion and uh, he has supernatural powers but he's only like six and so he's learning how to control them and it was something fun that me and my kids started watching this weekend it's really good. Oh it's so on Netflix. is it a kids kids show? It's a kids show oh, but cool. um, it's it's live action it's not like cartoon. Right um, right and it's got a really good cast. Again, it's a little black boy and he's, he's you know, it's uh, a super diverse cast. It takes place in Atlanta. Um, and uh, it's really, really entertaining cool. for the whole family. Cool. Um, I also wanted to shout out, particularly because today we talked about trauma. It's a book called uh, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Manikim. And uh, it is about trauma and healing generational trauma and the trauma that racism causes um, and what we can do about it. And oh, wow. very uh, cool. it's very good. I have it on Audible, but you can also get it on paperback uh, or hardcover. I don't know much about books. I just know you can get it on Audible. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, last thing, this is a true crime goodie, Minds of Madness. Have you heard of it? I have listened to it before, oh, yeah, my. but I haven't listened to it recently. So Apparently um, it's been around for a very yeah, long it's time. been around for a while. Yep. It is fantastic. <laughs> uh, and it's about the most disturbing criminal minds and the impact violent crimes have on survivors. It's and uh, are on have on survivors of homicide. And it does a really great job of humanizing the victims. Well told, well produced. Um, and that's I three shout outs. I'm so sorry. I'm so selfish. <laughs> I I just always wonder, don't you want to save one for next week? Because I have sometimes I have a hard time finding something. <laughs> oh no, I never have a hard time. Never mean, have a hard time. Yeah. My 
life is consuming things, uh-huh. consuming content and entertainment. Someday I'll get paid for it. But for now, <laughs> I'm just going to shout it out on the show. Okay. Some will never run out. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't care if you shout out a bunch of them. I'm just always like, how does she get so many things? Oh, it's my little secret. Okay. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, I shouted out the Gilded Age on HBO. Yeah, TV show. Uh, so now I'm going to shout out the Gilded Age podcast, which is the Get companion out. piece to the series. And Ooh. I just stumbled across it. Um, it tells a lot of the behind the scenes stories. Oh, including, I love that. Yeah, the history that inspired some of the storylines, like the character Peggy Scott, who's black, and uh-huh. her, her family who lives in Brooklyn and belongs to the black elite. Uh huh. And so they talk about the black elite and, nice. and stuff like that, or the different roles of men and women during the Gilded Age mm-hmm. and the industries that were bur- booming at the time, like railroads and newspapers. And as a history and a sociology nerd, I find it fascinating. I find that sh- a show that has a podcast attached to it is so much more enjoyable. Like it's like yeah. it's like getting to eat the lasagna and lick the plate. That's <laughs> that's my favorite thing to do. And that's what the show that's what it does. with yeah. the podcast does. So that is um <laughs> Raising Dion on Netflix. My grandmother's hands a book. Um, purchase it wherever you buy books by Resma <laughs> Manikim. And uh, wherever it is, you people buy yeah, where, books. Wherever you, I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> you open it, there's paper pages. I don't know. I've never seen one. But... I, yeah. <laughs> Audible all the way, baby. And then uh, a podcast called Minds of Madness, anywhere you get your podcasts. The Gilded Age on HBO. But on top of that, the Gilded Age podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Boy, oh boy, this was a fun one. Sorry, it it went a little longer, but, um, you know, whatever. So (laughs) where could the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. And this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality.
That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.